your attention, please. Will the real dis ladies please stand up? Welcome, dissidents. It's June, which means it's dissent season at the Supreme Court. We're dropping in with a bonus episode to share our thoughts on a few recent dissents. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And this week on Dist, it's a bonus episode. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. So a couple of weeks ago in our last bonus episode, we hosted many debates on four cases that the Supreme Court should consider overturning. Well, they should probably overturn all four of them, but the debate was which one wins. And by wins, we mean loses and should be overturned first. Slaughterhouse. Sadly for Anastasia's cause, Slaughterhouse did not win. The winner was Wickard v. Filburn, which... I think I was definitely promoting on Twitter. But if you want to check out, you can go back and listen to our bonus episode if you missed it with the mini debates. Also, you can check out Casey Maddox hosted the bracket on Twitter. He's at Casey Maddox with an underscore at the end of his name. But we have more pressing things to move on to, including a cert grant. Very exciting day uh, at Pacific Legal Foundation recently. Yeah, pop the champagne. Once again, we're going to be back at the Supreme Court in a case where our clients are Larry Will Wilkins, a stonemason, a timber framer, a blacksmith who creates pieces that are used in interior decorating. And he has brought this suit along with his neighbor, well, his neighbor across the street, Jane Stanton. They live next to the Bitterroot National Forest in Montana. And at issue in this case is a road going through both of their properties that the previous property owners granted to the U.S. Forest Service in 1962 for timber harvesting. So this is a very narrow easement. It's for one purpose. It's to one party, the U.S. Forest Service. And yet in 2006, the Forest Service put up a sign advertising the road as public access to the National Forest. And as you can imagine, as a result, there was a whole lot of increased usage of the road that not only is a serious traffic hazard, but there's also been road damage. There's been some disrespectful activity like fire threats, trespassing, verbal abuse. Apparently, Will's cat was shot by a trespasser. He survived. The cat survived. Yeah, it's been really hard. So, you know, this has been particularly distressful for Will because he is a military veteran and he's been diagnosed with PTSD. So this is a lot. And he wants to hold the Forest Service to the terms of its original easement. And so these neighbors filed a quiet title action represented by PLF, of course. And the district court said that the statute of limitations had run on that quiet title action. And not only that, but that the statute of limitations is a jurisdictional issue, meaning the court doesn't even have have jurisdiction over the case. It can't consider anything about it. It can't have hold an evidentiary hearing. There's a bunch of disputed facts about when the statute of limitations even started to run here, but you're not entitled to a hearing if there's no jurisdiction. And so it created this situation where the case was just dismissed despite there being, you know, some real factual disputes about it. And so we wrote a petition to the Supreme Court, my colleague, Jeff McCoy, arguing that the statute of limitations is not a jurisdictional issue. It is a a case management issue, essentially. And there's a circuit split on that. And the Supreme Court granted cert. So we're going to be at SCOTUS twice next term. Big term for PLF. Very exciting. Hoping that we can get our clients back in court to resolve this easement dispute. So whenever I hear about easements, 
it makes me think back to my property class in law school and how fascinating it was to learn about adverse possession. Oh, yeah. When you adversely possess, you know, a neighbor's property or whatever. Oh, my gosh. Me too, Elizabeth. Lifelong goal. I would love to uh, adversely possess, you know, like maybe just a foot over onto my neighbor's property. So I hope my neighbors aren't listening. Goal. I hate adverse possession. I think it's like the, the worst. I remember I went to my property professor's office hours after class because I couldn't. I was like, this this can't be right. This isn't right. You can't just possess someone's house by or property by squatting on it that this is an outrage like I think it was the beginning of my libertarianism I was so irritated I like went to office hours and he just sat there and stared at me and was like mm -hmm, no it's a thing yeah no it's definitely an outrage and and a challenge because I think it's a different length of time you have to knowingly possess in an adverse manner I forget all the elements the property open and notorious open and notorious thank you continuous yeah. But in some states, it's like seven years. So it just it's, you know, it's a challenge. So bring it on. Is it? There's some rural parts, though. It's a long story, but I have a family member who was talking about some rural property that they own and there were some squatters. And I was like, get the squatters off! Adverse possession! Adverse possession! <laughs> <laughs> So very timely. Anyway, fascinating. Uh, nothing to do with uh, with our Wilkins case, but that's how much I know about property law. Okay, moving on. The Supreme Court issued 11 opinions this week with some notable dissents. We are obviously heading into the final weeks of the term, and there are a lot of big cases we're waiting on. This week was not the week for big cases, though. Uh, so we're going to hit some of the most noteworthy dissents. A lot of cases, though. A lot of little cases. A lot of a lot of cases. You know, five one day, six another. That's I can do math. Um, that's a lot of a lot of opinions. Okay, so carry the phone. I want to I want to highlight Denezpi versus United States. I hope I pronounce that correctly. This involves the je double jeopardy clause. So the Supreme Court said that it is not a violation of double jeopardy when the federal government prosecutes someone for violating federal law who has already been prosecuted for violating tribal law stemming from the same incident. So Justice Barrett wrote for the six just majority, explaining that though there was one underlying act, the defendant here was prosecuted for separate violations, you know, of a tribal ordinance and then a federal law. So the defendant is a member of the Navajo Nation, and he was charged with assault and battery under the laws of the Ute Mountain Utes and entered a plea bargain, resulting in about four and a half months of prison time. Then he was charged with aggravated sexual abuse by the federal government, convicted and sentenced to 30 years. So wow. A big difference there. Here's what it, where it gets complicated, though. This tribe does not have its own court system, and instead it relies on the federal government, specifically the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is part of the Department of Interior, to enforce its laws. And then the tribe also relies on the Bureau's Court of Indian Offenses. I think there are five of them in total to hear any disputes. Okay, so Double Jeopardy, the clause, not the movie from the late 90s with Ashley Judd and Tommy Lee Jones. Great movie. It says, no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Under longstanding SCOTUS precedent, known as the dual sovereignty doctrine, a crime under one sovereign's laws is not considered the same offense as a crime under another sovereign's laws. And so here we have the tribe's laws and the laws of the federal government. So voila, dual sovereigns. Uh, just a few years ago, though, in Gamble versus United States, 
States, the court declined the invitation to overturn this doctrine in a case dealing with successive prosecutions by a state and the federal government. Okay, so Justice Gorsuch dissented in Gamble. Surprise, surprise, he dissented in Dinespi this week as well, joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor in part. So Gorsuch says, look, federal agency officials played every meaningful role in this case. They were involved in creating the ordinance. Um, I'm not going to get into the complicated background of how the Ute Mountain Utes ordinance came into being, but the federal government's involved. They were also, the federal government was, you know, the prosecutors, the judge, and the jailer. So the Court of Indian Offenses, he says, is a creature of federal law, and the Ute Mountain Ute uh, tribal offense at issue was approved by federal officials. So in short, we have the same defendant, same crime, same prosecuting authority. Section two of his dissent is what piqued my interest. Shocker, it's the part that Kagan and Sotomayor declined to join. So in this part, he points out that the Court of Indian Offenses has no actual statutory authority for existing. And here's the kicker. He says it has, quote, exclusive power to define, prosecute, and judge crimes. Three distinct functions the Constitution normally reserves for three separate branches. So that definitely raises my spidey sense when I hear about one body consolidating the three, these three powers of government. Another noteworthy thing about this case, though, is that it's part of a growing body of cases where justices Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch are at odds. So often we hear about justices who are nominated by the same president as being cookie cutters, but it's fascinating to watch these two self-proclaimed originalists and textualists come to opposite conclusions. Four cases this term, and a fifth one if you count one from last term. Uh, so far, Justice Barrett is coming out on top, though. Jonathan Adler from The Volokh Conspiracy has an interesting post about this phenomenon called Barrett versus Gorsuch, if you want to read more. I mean, I have a not, <laughs> as always, I have a not fully formed thought. It's just that I think Justice Gorsuch, especially after McGirt versus o Oklahoma, is, if anything, known for being friendly in his interpretation of the law towards tribes. And I think in a way that's what the dissenters, their outcome would have been friendly to the tribes. And yet it's also considering them merely a creature of federal law, which in a way is, I think, at odds with that. I don't know. It just it's kind of interesting to me that by it empowers the tribes by also disempowering them by considering them merely a creature of federal law. I don't know. Thoughts? Do you have thoughts? Yeah, I I see that tension as well. And I, I don't know that much about tribal law. So I don't know how many tribes actually have this kind of arrangement with the federal government where federal officials are involved in their lawmaking and involved in actually enforcing their laws and providing the venue, the forum for um, litigation. There there must be enough that there are five courts of Indian offenses, but you know, I don't know if you survey all the tribes, how many are actual sovereigns versus this kind of quasi-federal creature situation we've got. Well, interestingly, a another case having to do with Native American tribes with Gorsuch at the forefront. This next case is Isleta del Sur Pueblo versus Texas. It involves a statute that governs two Native American tribes in Texas, one being the petitioner, Isleta del Sur Pueblo, and the Alabama Cushata, I think that's how you say it, reservation in East Texas. In 1987, Congress restored a federal trust relationship. It had formerly been that the state of Texas had a trust relationship with the tribes, but it dissolved that and Congress restored this federal trust relationship. And as part of that restoration act, Congress prohibited as a matter of federal law, all gaming that's prohibited by Texas law. And now a dispute has arose, arisen. It has arisen. <laughs> he has risen. <laughs> a dispute came up all having to do with bingo. 
Yeah, bingo's great, isn't it? I love bingo. It's a fun, fun way to pass the time. Texas allows some bingo, but not others. By the way, this just irritates me because it, I don't know, it's, it speaks to me that you can play bingo for charity or so long as the person putting on the bingo game is not making any money. But if you make money off of it, if it's for profit, it's prohibited. And this is something that comes up a lot in America, that if you're making money, then somehow that subjects you to all of these regulations. It's that immoral bingo operation. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's ridiculous. I see equal protection case. In fact, I thought that had been struck down somewhere. Like you couldn't make that distinction based on for-profit or non-profit in the context of bingo specifically. Anyway, hey, any of you for-profit bingo outfits out there, give me a call because this this seems arbitrary. Nonetheless, bingo for non-profits is allowed. Bingo for for for-profit disallowed. And because bingo on the reservations would be for profit, Texas argues it would be prohibited by Texas law and therefore is prohibited as a matter of federal law under this Restoration Act that Congress had passed. So the tribe argues, no, 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 no. Prohibited doesn't mean regulated. Like bingo is only regulated in Texas. It's not full on prohibited. And so we're only prohibited doing from things that are flat out banned. That's what prohibited means in this Restoration Act. And they got that from this 1987 Supreme Court case called California versus Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, which did just that. It distinguished between types of gambling that a state outright prohibits and those that are permitted but regulated. And under Cabazon, if we used that framework, because Texas only regulates bingo, then bingo would be permitted in the tribal casinos, right? So the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 opinion by Justice Gorsuch, joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett, says laws that regulate something don't prohibit it. And that comes from Cabazon, and Congress was looking to Cabazon when it passed this Restoration Act. And so that means that bingo is not prohibited as a matter of federal law in Texas for these tribes, and the tribe can engage in for-profit bingo. Now, Chief Justice Roberts dissented, joined by Thomas Alito and Kavanaugh, and I don't know this uh, this dissent really tickled me because he just seems kind of mad i think he thinks that the tribes have been a little bit unfair and and the bargain that everyone agreed upon in this restoration act texas congress and the tribes you know there's been sort of a bait and switch because he says the tribe at the outset during these negotiations expressly disclaimed an interest in bingo and that was that was underlying those negotiations and so not really fair because it misled everybody in fact, you know, it's not only doing bingo illegally under Texas law. <laughs> Actually, there was an inspection. They went into the tribal casinos and they found out that there was like full on Vegas style gambling going on, which is actually illegal under that Restoration Act. And so Roberts is angry and he says, this is really creative here that you're using the word prohibit to mean regulated rather than prohibited. There's no evidence that Congress intended to use the word prohibit as a term of art. And maybe they, maybe Congress had Cabazon, that Cabazon case in mind when it drafted this Restoration Act, but it used very specific language, meant prohibited, and bingo would be prohibited under Texas law, even though it's otherwise regulated in some circumstances, and so it should be prohibited here. Anyway, it's just kind of a crack up to me because if you scroll down to the end of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, he says, you know, basically Congress has thrown out the bargain that all of these parties struck, and then you scroll down a little bit more and it's like exhibit A and it's a picture of one of the tribes in the Vegas style gambling. He's like, see, look what they're doing. They're just flouting the law. He's just, he, he actually includes a picture. The bingo was the camel's nose under the tent for the Vegas style gambling. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that's that.
no follow-up thoughts on that. <laughs> well, you know, it just made me think of the, a couple of years ago, there was the sports betting for amateur sports case. And I remember, you know, hearing a lot about how that was going to doom amateur sports, but they're still, they're still at it. So anyway, yeah, I don't have any deep thoughts about the bingo controversy of 2022 in Texas. Yeah. Does prohibit mean prohibit or does prohibit mean regulate? Kind of interesting. Let's whip out our dictionaries. Webster third, right? See what it says. What does prohibit mean? Prohibit. Okay, moving on. One last case here. It's actually a unanimous case, but it's slightly interesting for reasons that will be revealed. This case is American Hospital Association versus Becerra. It has to do with the way that the Department of Health and Human Services is setting prescription drug reimbursement rates under Medicare. So under the, the relevant statute here, if the department has conducted a survey of how much it actually costs these hospitals to acquire a prescription drug, then it can set the rates as it wants and vary the rates among different hospital groups. But if the department has not conducted a survey, then there's a formula for how much the reimbursement rate is. And as calculated and adjusted by the secretary, that reimbursement rate then comes into play. And well, this was the question, can the department vary the rates among hospital groups under that second option? And the department says it can because the provision has this as adjusted by the secretary provision and says, well, if we can adjust them, we can adjust them however we want and we can vary them. But the problem is, is that the power to vary among hospital groups is explicitly allowed under the first provision where DHHS has conducted a survey. And so what happened was DHHS never conducted a survey and yet it set its rates and it did vary the reimbursement rates among groups and the hospital associations who are now getting less money sue and say, you don't have the right to, to vary these reimbursement rates because you didn't conduct a survey. And so what's interesting about this is former Solicitor General Donald Verrilli arguing for the hospitals says DHHS can't do that. If it wants to vary the rates, it has to do a study first. The government says no. The statute says we can adjust so we can adjust them however we want. And the court says to get to the bottom of all this, do we have to get at Chevron deference? Chevron deference for listeners who do not know is the idea that where a statute is unclear, court should defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of that relevant law. Boo. Yeah, boo. We're not big on Chevron deference here. But the court says, actually, in its opinion today, we don't have to get to Chevron deference because this is just so obviously disallowed. The, the text is so clear that we don't need to defer. Chevron isn't even implicated. It's not triggered. And it's a, a, I know opinion, but I do know one dissenter, and she's right here across from me. I have thoughts. Okay, first, I'm glad that the court rejected HHS's claim that its action was not even reviewable by courts. So I'm glad. I'm glad about that. Judicial review. Judicial review. Exactly. I'm also glad that the court said the agency acted unlawfully when it blatantly disregarded the statute that was meant to constrain its exercise of power. Judicial review. Judicial review. But here is where I dissent. One of the issues expressly raised and that permeated the oral argument was whether the court should defer to HHS's interpretation. So I'm glad the court didn't defer, but it's really odd that Chevron and deference appear not once in the opinion. Yeah, I control F'd it. I, same here. And there wasn't even a concurrence talking about this. You, you would expect 
again, to come back again to justice. This is like the Justice Gorsuch show this episode. He loves to talk about Chevron deference and, you know, or Justice Thomas. He loves to write separate opinions because he's got a lot of thoughts and he wants to share them with the world. Um, so I would have expected somebody would have something to say about the deference argument in this case. So it's all good news that the court didn't defer. And, you know, I've seen some discussion on Twitter. Is this like a sub silencio overruling of Chevron? I mean, no, one could be so lucky. But the court does need to provide guidance to lower courts and not just pick and choose when it wants to apply Chevron, because really it's damage that's done in, in the lower courts from Chevron and other related deference doctrines, because the court, the Supreme Court only takes like 70 cases a term. So, you know, so many cases where an individual or a business is ensnared by some regulatory agency and then they go to court and the court says, oh, we have to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of this ambiguous statutory language. I mean, so many of cases end in the appeals court. So the lower courts need guidance. Supreme Court, you need to overturn Chevron. Preach. You know, what I liked about this case is it brought to mind because, of course, it's former Solicitor General Donald Verley arguing the case, and he gets to win without having to overturn Chevron. And it just brings to mind that meme. You know that meme where the guy's like sweating and there's two buttons and there <laughs> yeah. are two things the person likes, but they're, you know, the opposite of each other? Winning this case, Chevron deference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Donald Verley's like, Ugh, uh. and to be clear, he did say at oral argument, you know, the court asked him, if we have to overturn Chevron to get at this, should we do it? And he's like, yeah, we want to win. Of course you should. But I think we all know he didn't really want to do that. And guess what? Everything's coming up Don Verrilli because he didn't have to. He wins and he gets his precious Chevron. Okay, one last, I don't think anyone needs to hear about that much of this case, but one last, I want to call it the uh, dissent of the week. We're inaugurating a new award on DIST. Goes to Clarence Thomas. This comes in Viking River Cruise versus Moriana involving the Federal Arbitration Act. I will not bore you with the details of the case, but it earns dissent of the week because it's three sentences and we appreciate brevity here at DIST. He said, look, the FAA doesn't apply to state court proceedings. I said it before, here and here, check out where I said it. And uh, so I dissent. And that was it. So that's why it is the dissent of the week. Okay, we will end with a little game we like to call Name, Name That, that dissent. dissent. I'm going to read a line from a dissent in Anastasia is going to name that descent. Hopefully. Are you ready? I want to say I was born ready, but I'm never ready. I'm just so nervous. <laughs> okay, here's the first one. In my view, the public use clause is a meaningful limit on the government's eminent domain power, but today's decision construes the public use clause to be a virtual nullity without the slightest nod to its original meaning. Nice. Kilo descent. Do you know who wrote it? Well, it wasn't my bestie Kennedy because he wrote a concurrence, even though he was like, you know, I'm hesitant and there should be. Anyway, enough about Kennedy. Uh, Scalia? No. Uh, oh, not O'Connor. Oh, God. I don't... It was Justice Thomas. Oh, I was about to say Thomas. Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, well, sorry. I mean, how many bites at the apple do you want? Well, I didn't take a bite. I said it wasn't O'Connor. <laughs> That's not a bite. Anyway, all right. Process all of right. elimination. Yeah. Okay, next one. Um, I'm paraphrasing a bit because I don't want to give away too much. 
The majority's narrow reading of this amendment rendered it a vain and idle enactment, which accomplished nothing and most unnecessarily excited Congress and the people on its passage. 14th Slaughterhouse? Yes. All right. I was like, which? What's been neutered? All of them? <laughs> okay. Final one. This is one of, it, it's actually a concurrence, but it's one of those, it's basically a dissent. And it's from modern times. The majority proceeds to impose so many new and nebulous qualifications and limit limitations on this earlier case, I'm not going to say the name, that there is little practical difference between keeping it on life support and overruling it entirely. So the doctrine emerges maimed and enfeebled, in truth, zombified. Oh, is this another, uh, was that Scalia? No. Oh, it sounds like his. Yeah, the lemon and the zombie. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Somebody's taken his, zo somebody's appropriating his zombie yes. language. Who would do such a thing? Kavanaugh? I don't know. No. Barrett? I don't know. No. Thomas? It's, it's Gorsuch. <laughs> oh. In Kaiser v. Wilkie, which was no. a, a <laughs> which was a deference <laughs> case. So he's talking oh. about. Don't hit me with your SOP cases, Elizabeth. Not Chevron, but one of its cousins, our deference. It's been a rough morning. Well, I think this has been an educational experience for everyone, including Anastasia, with these, <laughs> <laughs> these trivia questions, um, which is, you know what? That's the goal. We want people to learn, and we want to learn too. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST.